This is Experiencing Jesus with Bishop Marianne Buddy. Hello everyone, I'm Marianne Buddy, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, and I'd like to welcome you to this sermon series entitled, The Way of Love, Practices for a Jesus-Focused Life. It's an eight-week series based on the rule of life that our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, has invited the entire Episcopal Church to adopt and that I pray will be a central focus for our life here in the Diocese of Washington. The way of love has particular spiritual significance for me for reasons that will become clear to you as you listen to this first sermon. And I hope this introduction piques your interest and that you'll follow along in the coming weeks. Now, when the presiding bishop was invited to preach the homily for the royal wedding earlier this year, people around the world were introduced to him as the extraordinary Christian leader and compelling preacher that he is. And he preached on the power of love, selfless, sacrificial love, and how that love can change the world. And the world responded to his message with overwhelming affirmation. It's clear we all need that love now, all of us, everywhere. And we of the Episcopal Church are so blessed to have Michael Curry as our spiritual leader. We know him. We know that no matter the setting, be it a small congregation, a huge public gathering, or the royal wedding, he consistently and compellingly speaks to us of God's unconditional, life-transforming love for every human being, a love revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The presiding bishop will tell us anytime he gets the chance that Jesus came into the world to show us how to live. Jesus came, he says, so that we might know God's love so deeply and personally for ourselves that we can't help but be changed into more loving people. He came, the presiding bishop says, to embody God's love, to help transform this world from the nightmare it often is into the dream God has for us all. And while scripture teaches that God shows no partiality, we who call ourselves Christians have a particular mandate to follow Jesus, to walk in his ways of love and be instruments of that love for others. Well, last December, the presiding bishop invited a dozen or so clergy and lay leaders of the church to spend two days with him. And he gathered us and he asked us to help him work through an issue that was on his mind. Um, and part of it was he wanted to move from being the one who talks about love to being one who can help us to grow in that love that Jesus calls us to. The other issue that was troubling him is that in our church, the Episcopal Church, for all that is good about it, all that we love about our church, it is nonetheless not the most compelling witness for Jesus' love in our time because we are stuck, stuck in trends of decline and the pressures of a declining institution. That's not true of every Episcopal church, 
but the overall trends are humbling. We are a disproportionately aging denomination and we're getting smaller every year. And around the country, even after a really big service at Washington National Cathedral, like the one we had recently for the funeral of Senator John McCain, even after all of that free press, the majority of people under the age of 50 have no idea who we are. The presiding bishop wants to change that, to change the direction of those trends so that we might be compelling instruments of Jesus' love. And I want to do that as well. So what are we missing? We wondered together as we gathered those two days in December. What could we do as leaders, not only to ensure the survival of our churches, but that they might thrive as vibrant spiritual communities in our land? Part of the problem many people say about us as Episcopalians is that we're so hesitant to talk about our faith, others don't know we're here. Moreover, we seem inordinately attached to our ways of doing things, our preferences in worship, our preferences in music. And we think of ourselves often as warm and welcoming and inclusive, but really, is that how others experience us? When they see us, do they think of Jesus. So maybe to turn things around, what we all need to do is try harder. Try harder to make our presence known. Try harder to be more welcoming. Or perhaps, surely there is more that we all can and must do. But as we prayed and talked about this together, another consideration surfaced. I wonder the presiding bishop said at one point, no, I actually worry about this. I worry that far too few of our people have experienced God's unconditional love for them. Do they really know God's love, know it deep in their bones? Have you considered, he asked us, that the reason most Episcopalians are hesitant to speak of Jesus is that they they don't really know him as real for them. And then he paused. How can we share what we don't have? The room went silent. I, I found myself thinking back to something I had just read in a book by the Methodist pastor, Adam Hamilton. It was a passage on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, when we speak about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, we're speaking of God's active work in our lives, God's way of leading us, guiding us, forming and shaping us, of God's power and presence to comfort and encourage us and to make us the people God wants us to be. The Spirit is the voice of God, whispering, wooing, and beckoning. And in listening to this voice and being shaped by this power, we find that we become most fully and authentically human. But, he goes on, I think that many Christians live spirit-deficient lives, a bit like someone who's sleep-deprived, nutrient-deprived, or oxygen-deprived. Many Christians haven't been taught about the spirit, 
nor encouraged to speak the Spirit's work, to seek the Spirit's work in their lives. As a result, our spiritual lives are a bit anemic as we try living the Christian life by our own power and wisdom. Well, as I heard the presiding bishop speak and simultaneously recalled Adam Hamilton's words, it was as if God were holding a mirror to my face. I wasn't thinking about other people. I was thinking about my own life, my own walk with God. And right there, I had to acknowledge to myself and before God that on most days, I try to live and to lead from my own power and wisdom. Even after all of the experiences of grace that I have known, my daily default position is to assume somehow that everything depends on me. And as I go around the diocese, friends, I see that same position, that same attitude at work in some of you, many of you. It's like we're trying to do this work by ourselves, by our own power and wisdom. But never does Jesus say that that's what we're to do. Never does Jesus say that it's up to us. Instead, he says things like, I am the vine. I am the source of your strength. I will give you that capacity to love. You are a branch. You are to share what you receive from me. It was back in December when the presiding bishop decided that he wanted to spend his remaining years as our spiritual leader, helping us experience the love of God made known to us in Jesus and to follow Jesus in that way of love. And I decided right there that I wanted to do the same as your bishop. I wanted to draw from that deep well that Jesus offers and have all of us draw together from that well and from his love and his call that we would be his witnesses. And it was from that desire, not just on my part, not just on the part of the presiding bishop, but on the part of many throughout the church that this way of love Practices for a Jesus-focused life was born. Now, adhering to daily practices of any kind is known as following a rule of life. Spiritual rule of life is simply a conscious effort on our part to be open each day to the love of God in Jesus, to receive that love for ourselves, and then offer love to others as we hear God's call. And if we adhere to these practices over time, they shape our character and determine the course of our lives. The writer Brian McLaren uh, puts it this way. Spiritual practices, he writes, are those actions within our power that help us narrow the gap between the person we are and the person we hope to become. They help us become good and deep company for ourselves and others about surviving our 20s, 40s, even our 80s, and not becoming a jerk in the process, about not letting what happens to us deform or destroy us, about realizing that what we earn or accumulate means nothing 
compared to what we become and who we are. Spiritual practices are about life, about training ourselves to become the kinds of people who have eyes and actually see, who have ears and actually hear, and so experience not just survival, but life that is real, worth living, and good. And more than that, and this is especially pertinent to our openness to God in these practices, he says that our character, the kind of people we are, determines how much of God we can actually take in, how much we can experience, and maybe even which version of God we experience. Which is to say that there's a lot at stake here for us. There are seven practices outlined in the way of love, and in upcoming weeks, I'll offer a reflection on each one in depth in sermons I'll preach throughout the diocese. But today, I invite you to hear and consider them all together and to contemplate what it might be like for you to take on one or more of these practices every day. And as you listen, let me underscore a few things. First, these practices in general don't require dramatic gestures on your part or mine. On occasion, they might, but mostly they are the small steps we take every day whose impact will be felt over time. It's kind of like um, a sign I saw in my dentist's office once that said, floss only the teeth you want to keep. The goal of flossing is to have a healthy set of teeth for the whole of your life. If you skip a day, probably won't be missed. Um, but over time, the practice, the discipline, is what promotes oral hygiene. I would say in a similar way, spiritual practices are what prepare us, equip us, open our hearts to receive more of Jesus, not only while we're practicing them in our small daily practices, but when we're out in our lives, able more freely to respond to the love that is offered. Um, now, it is also true that these practices will not be the quick fix to address all the challenges we face as a church. We'll still have to deal with them all. And truth be told, there's no guarantee that even if every one of us, every Episcopalian under the sun, decided to follow the ways of love, that our church's decline would turn around. But on the other hand, if we never engage in these practices or others like them, we may not have a church worth saving. If it's a church that's driven mostly by our power and wisdom, those are, those are the efforts that build a building, an institution. Those are what fuel a small community desperate to survive. The love of Jesus lived through people, as the presiding bishop says. Now that's a movement, a gathering of people who have heard the call to follow Jesus in his ways of love, person by person, community by community, helping to heal the world. So here they are, seven practices. The first practice is to turn. So here they are, seven practices for a Jesus-focused life. The first practice is to turn. That's it, to turn, to turn our gaze turn our mind, our thoughts, our attention to Jesus. 
simple as it sounds, it's the foundational practice, referring back to the first conscious decision we made, or perhaps have yet to make, to be a follower of Jesus. Do you remember when that, the moment when you made that decision? Or maybe you made, you made it unconsciously or slowly, or perhaps it was, as it was for, for me, a rather clear moment of decision. Was there a time when you decided to turn back to him and to the faith after a time away? To turn also describes, though, the daily decision to focus our attention on Jesus, to turn our gaze, to turn our thoughts, asking for his guidance and grace. So now, when I wake up in the morning, I try to remember to turn and acknowledge Jesus. In doing so, I thank him for the gift of another day and ask for his strength and guidance, and I commit myself to him. Now, there are days I confess when I'm up for hours before I remember to do this, but when I do, I simply take a deep breath and turn, turn myself toward Jesus. The second practice is to learn, to learn, to commit each day, each day, to some form of learning, reading the Bible or listening to devotional material, something that focuses us on Jesus' teachings. Now, sometimes the learning process involves a significant commitment of, through a class or a study, but other times it's a small daily encounter with sources of wisdom and inspiration. You don't need much, just a bit of insight. And I can't stress how important it is to continue learning in faith. Because if we don't, it's easy to get stuck in an understanding of God that's too small for us, that might have served us when we were children, but doesn't anymore. Or we, or we lose the practice of, of thinking about the world through the metaphors and the wisdom of his teachings and the power of his stories. Also, be warned, Frankly, there's a lot of bad teaching, a lot of bad teaching in the name of Christianity. Teaching that causes intelligent, thoughtful, spiritual people rightfully to turn away from so-called Christian teachings that aren't Christian at all. So choose your resources wisely. There are many fine tools to help us go deeper in our knowledge of God. What matters here isn't the quantity of our learning, but the steady commitment to take in a bit of insight each day. The third practice is tied to the first and the second, and yet also stands alone, and that is to pray. Again, spend time each day, and it needn't be long. It needn't be long in intentional prayer. And we can pray at all times and in any place, I've learned, though, that making the effort to actually sit down in the same place every day for a few minutes has a remarkably powerful impact on my life over time. It's the time I give to sort through and settle my thoughts, like murky water settles in stillness. It's a time that allows whatever clarity might emerge as I do. It's a time when I speak my heart, sometimes with sighs instead of words before, before God. And it's a time 
to listen, saying to God, as the Samuel, as the prophet Samuel learned to do as a small boy, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And we may not hear anything in the silence of a given day, but you know we might. And we will never hear anything from God if we don't take time to listen. Now, in terms of time, we can commit ourselves to the first three practices, to turn, learn, and pray every day in as little as 10 to 15 minutes. That's where I start whenever I've strayed from daily practice and need to begin again. And I generally work up to about 20. But again, the quantity of time isn't the issue. The benefit comes with the habit of setting aside bits of time over time. And sometimes it's best to start small. The fourth practice moves us now from the personal to the collective, to worship in Christian community. Because following Jesus is not a solo effort. We need one another. Rarely do we grow in the ways of love on our own. As one writer put it, the church at its best is like a school that trains people in the way of love, an unusual school that lasts a lifetime and from which we never really graduate. Graduate. Christian faith is like one long apprenticeship in the way of love. Moreover, when we are inspired to love collectively our impact in the world, in our communities, um, expands exponentially. And we are known not just as a person, but a people committed to his way of love. The fifth practice takes us out of our own lives, out of our own realm, and into the world around us. And that is the practice of blessing, to bless. I think this is the most lovely and understated of the practices, to speak blessing, to speak words of kindness and affirmation into the life of another person. Uh, the Irish poet John O'Donohue writes of blessing, the power of blessing. He says, the world can be harsh and negative, and don't we all know that? The world can be harsh and negative. But if we remain generous and patient, kindness reveals itself. Something deep in the human soul depends on the presence of kindness. Something instinctive in us expects it, and once we sense it, we're able to trust and to open ourselves. So we are the ones who can offer those words of kindness upon which another human soul depends. Think of the countless opportunities you have every day to speak kindness into another person's life, to offer a word of hope in a time of uncertainty, to provide wind in another's sails. The sixth practice is arguably the most challenging, and that is to go, <laughs> to go in the sense of crossing borders of our familiarity to better understand the life experience of another, to go and experience the world through others' eyes, to go and show up where love is most needed. The great criminal justice reformer of our time, Brian Stevenson, speaks of 
the need to be proximate. In other words, to get close to those who bear the brunt of our society's ills and come to know them as our friends and neighbors and to create a world then with their well-being in mind. The final practice may, may be the most countercultural of all and one we struggle with mightily, most of us, and that is to rest. God rested, as the creation story in the book of Genesis tells us, God rested after God created the world and humankind. And we, friends, we are mortal. Our bodies and souls are not of infinite capacity. They need rest. They need to be restored in rest. And resting also reminds us that the world continues on even when we've stepped away. And we can do this for a time each day, each week. We can lay our burdens down. This is the time for renewal, for the things that make for joy. This is Sabbath time. And Sabbath isn't something we earn by getting all our work done. Sabbath is our birthright as children of God. Now, on our diocesan website, you'll find a description of each way of love practice, and I invite you to spend time, spend time this week reflecting on them. Which ones come easily to you? With which do you struggle? And is there one that particularly speaks as something your life needs right now? And consider taking on as an experiment if you don't already have a daily prayer practice, consider taking on a small daily ritual that includes the first three practices, turn, learn, and pray. And if it's helpful, we have a way of love devotion sheet where there are brief biblical passages for you to use. So if you don't already, you can set aside 10, maybe 15 minutes each day. Sit quietly, turn your internal gaze towards Jesus, reflect on the passage for the day, and pray. I'd love to hear from you if you do, what your experience is like. You know, so often we think of the Christian faith as an obligation as a, or a set of beliefs that we must hold. Well, there are obligations and beliefs in Christian life, but if we get stuck there, we can lose sight of or never experience at all what is the most important part. At its heart, Christianity offers an invitation to experience a loving, personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's a relationship we can trust. It's a relationship that provides refuge and solid ground upon which to stand and the calling of our life, the vocation for which we were created, that will lead us into greater blessings still. The way of love, this is a journey for a lifetime. It's a way of knowing God, receiving and sharing Jesus' love and being a blessing to the world. I can't think of a better way to live. I can't think of people with whom I'd rather walk in this way than with you. May God bless and keep you always, always. And may you always know that you are walking in the light and the love of God. <laughs>